exile in Babylon. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. The people of Israel are subservient to this imperial force. King Xerxes is the emperor over, over the Persians and the Medes uh, in uh, Susa, the capital of this empire. And Xerxes uh, commands absolute power. His wife has been disobedient to him, so he's had her dis- deposed as queen. And he's put out to tender for a new wife. In steps Mordecai. Mordecai Mordecai is a canny member of the Jewish nation who puts forward his adopted daughter Esther as a potential candidate to be queen. And she's taken in to the palace. And lo and behold, King Xerxes looks favorably on her and she becomes queen. Mordecai, meanwhile, refuses to bow before the, uh, the vassal, the, the sort of high ruling official of the empire called Haman. He refuses to bow before this man, refusing to give the dignity that only belongs to God to a human being. Haman is enraged. He goes to ask, Morde- uh, goes to ask King Xerxes that not just Mordecai, but the entire Jewish race be wiped out in an attempt at ethnic cleansing. Mordecai, we find in our passage, goes to ask Esther, will she go before the king to save her people? Over to you, Rosemary. (laughs) I was afraid Will was going to spoil the cliffhanger, but we're all right. (laughs) The reading is taken from the fourth chapter of the book of Esther, beginning at the first verse, and it can be found on page 484 of the Church Bible, 484. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. 
and he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hattak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death. Unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for just such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, I and my attendants will fast, as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Rosemary. I hope you've been enjoying a bit of Old Testament truth over the last couple of weeks. It's good to have a good solid chunk of Old Testament scripture. Well, we're in our series on prayer at the moment, the why, the when, and the how of prayer. We've looked at why do we intercede, why do we pray every day, and now why should we pray at work? Is there any point in praying in the workplace? We live in a world that is all too obvious, as Chris referred in his prayers, to the fact that our world is morally compromised. All the power is seeming to be amassed in the hands of global multinationals. There's a shift from the west to the east. And it's very easy for us here in London to feel somewhat powerless. In fact, many of us just feel it like it's a struggle to survive. Every now and then, maybe we ask ourselves, what am I becoming? What kind of a person am I being molded into? Even if I win this rat race, I'll still be a rat, <laughs> as has been said. And into this, we look um, 
slightly wistfully at some uh, Christian attitudes to the world and the workplace. Perhaps we're tempted to think that all this is just fuel for the fire. One day it will all just be burnt up. Or maybe we think our mission is just a holy snatch and grab operation. We go in, we evangelize someone, and we get out again. And hopefully we won't get too damaged in the process. Or perhaps we, have, we put a p- biblical gloss on things and we say, well, what I'm doing is tent making. Like St. Paul, I go in, I do my bit, I earn some money so that I can give it away. Maybe I give some of my money to the church, maybe I give it to mission organizations. And so I have this a parasitic relationship with my employer for the good of the gospel. This is how I justify my life in the workplace. Now, where there may be elements of truth in all these things, I believe that each one on its own is found to be inadequate when we look at the biblical account. So how do we view our work, and what's the place of prayer in it? That's what we're looking at today. Shall we pray together as we consider these things? Father, we recognize that we're a diverse bunch of people. We all have a different relationship with work. Perhaps some of us are looking for it. Perhaps looking, some of us are looking to get out of it. Perhaps for some of us, it's a memory rather than a present reality. Lord, we pray that you would guide us by your spirit as we consider a healthy relationship with our work, the working part of our lives, Lord, that we would be fruitful and that we would enjoy your peace and joy in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, uh, the book of uh, Esther sets a scene for us of exile. And many, when they come to think about our current reality, we resonate, we, we have a, a, a sense of familiarity with this concept of exile. For Esther, it was a Babylonian exile, as, as we mentioned before, that her, their, the Jews' hometown of uh, Jerusalem had been destroyed, the temple, and with it, all the old patterns of life. And for us, maybe we feel that, uh, that past patterns of life no longer work for us. We have a sense of our home being at the Father's side, which is true. But how now do we live in this current world? The, uh, the image there on the, the right is the cover of Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones probably their second best album ever made by the Rolling Stones. In 1972, for various reasons, they fell out of grace with their record label, and they were exiled. They were cast out. And so Exile on Mainstream, uh, Main Street was, was made uh, in Keith Richards' holiday house in the south of France, and they started up their own record label and an amazingly creative time it was too, amongst other things. Cast out. 
living away from home. The, uh, the experience of the exiles in Babylon was one of complete displacement. It was a time where they were lacking in confidence. If you read the book of Esther from beginning to end, you'll find no reference whatsoever to the words God or the Lord. There's no reference to God at all. In fact, the closest that we come to God in this book is the verse that we just read. Perhaps it's for a time such as this that you have come to this royal position. Perhaps. Do you hear the lack of confidence in the language? Maybe. Could it be that God is with us in the midst of this separation where the presence of God's reality seems to be sometimes a memory. It's difficult to grab hold of. But Mordecai steps up and takes a step of faith. He believes uh, that God is at work in this place. And so uh, it turns out, I'll tell you the ending of the story. I think it'd be good if you went home and read the rest of Esther. It's an amazing story. But I will spoil the ending. <laughs> Rosemary. What happened was that Esther did go in to see the king, uh, risking the death penalty because she wasn't, hadn't been invited to go and see him. And the king extended his scepter to say, it's okay, you can come forward. And she then goes on to explain the plight of her people. And the king relents, and the punishment that um, was due for, for the Jewish people is actually placed on Haman's shoulders. And the enemy of the Jews ends up uh, getting the treatment that he wanted to give to them. And so it's gone down through history that this story is read every year at the Feast of Purim on the 8th of March, it was this year. And whenever the word, whenever the name Haman, the enemy of the Jews, is read out, there's this sort of boo, hiss, boo, and uh, make a rattling of rattles because the name Haman should be blotted out throughout history. And whenever Mordecai or Esther's name are pronounced, everybody goes, yay! It's a real pantomime moment in the Jewish calendar. And they remember that in this time of exile, when the people seemed furthest away from God, that they didn't even have the confidence to mention his name, still God was with them. Perhaps it's for a time such as this that the Lord has put you in this place of royal position. So what lessons can we learn from these exiles? I want to use uh, three headings just to, uh, as sort of nuggets for us to, to th take away with us. There's an up, there's an in, and there's an out. Up, in, and out. Three directions of travel, if you like, for us to think about when we can contemplate our workplace and how we might pray in it. First of all, the up. Well, what was it that got the Jews into the mess they were in in the first place? It was Mordecai being unwilling to bend the knee and bow before this human being, this, this ruler, this powerful man, um, to bend the knee, to give him the honor that is due only to God. Mordecai put God first and was willing to deal with the consequences. 
he believed uh, the words that, that Paul was going to speak later on into the, the book of Romans. All things work together for the good of those who love God. It was uh, Mordecai's belief that God is everywhere. We used the word last week, imminence. Imminence, the doctrine of the church that God is everywhere. Before we get to a place, we find that God got there first. Even when we feel furthest away, the truth is that God is there. Mordecai also had a kingdom belief that God is king over everything. That God is king in my workplace. God is king in my home. God is king over London, over the UK, and over everywhere. And so therefore, Mordecai refused to let anybody else be king in his life. He refused to give anybody else the position that was due only to God, because that is idolatry. And the Ten Commandments warn us against such things. So Mordecai exhibited a belief in imminence, the kingdom of God, and he recognized that he was called to be light in a dark place. He was willing to be the answer in the situation that he found himself. Jesus said to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Somebody uh, said at the conference that we went to earlier this week that the city is only a dark place because there's an absence of light in it. And we're the ones called to be the light in the dark place. If we remove ourselves from it, the darkness will only grow. But if we go and take our place, the light will cast out the darkness. So what of prayer? What can we uh, learn about prayer to a God who is imminent, his kingdom is coming, and that calls us to be light in a dark place? Well, I think what I'd like to challenge us to do is to pray not just in our workplace, but to pray for our workplace. To pray for the organizations that we find ourselves in. Ezekiel challenged the people, well, the Lord challenged the people through Ezekiel, the, the, uh, the prophet in exile. The Lord said to him, seek the welfare of the city that you find yourselves in. Seek the welfare of the city that you find yourselves in. This was the, the context of that was Babylon. These were the people that had destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. This was a morally compromised empire and the Lord commanded his people to seek its welfare. So the challenge goes to us. When was the last time that I prayed for my chief executive officer? When was the last time that I prayed earnestly before God because I knew that our board of directors was meeting? When was the last time I prayed for my line manager, my team leader, my supervisor? When was the last time I prayed that the organization would flourish 
and that it would serve its customers well. Seek the welfare of the city. So we pray for our organizations, believing that God is king even over them. That's the upward direction. What of the inward directions? Mordecai's challenge to Esther was to lead an integrated life. Integration is our next point. He said to her, don't think that you're going to escape this judgment, this, uh, this persecution, just because you're the queen. In fact, you also remain a Jew. And so the challenge to Esther was to live as a Jew and as queen, to be integrated in her life. This we contrast with the tendency in our world to compartmentalize. I have this area of my life, I have that area of my life, I have my work life, I have my, work, my family life, perhaps I have my uh, supporting Chelsea Football Club life, uh, maybe I've got other different, type, different areas of my life. And the challenge to us is to integrate these things. Uh, Rick Warren, the, uh, the church leader, spoke this week, and he was saying that the Titanic myth is that you can keep a ship afloat by compartmentalizing its hull. You split the hull up into lots of different compartments, and if it happens to hit an iceberg, it will stay afloat because all the other compartments will keep it afloat. And what Rick Warren went on to say was, a hole in a boat is still a hole in the boat. And what a lesson was learned there. Compartmentalizing is not a strategy for survival, even though this is the tendency, this is the cultural norm that we live with today. Integration. Living the same life throughout all of the different areas of our life. The other challenge to us is one of fruitfulness. A balanced life means that we can be fruitful. So we give attention to different times in our life, times of planting something new and times of pruning back, times to water and nourish and feed and times of harvest too, bringing in and enjoying the fruit of our labors. And so in this inward direction, what we do is we pray for our own position. Is it the right time for me to be in this place? Perhaps it's for a time such as this that the Lord has put me in this place at this time. Sometimes that's a very difficult thing to do. I had a very diff difficult boss for a period of time. Some of you have heard me tell the story before. And I really struggled with whether it was the right thing for me to do to stay at work or not. I felt that I, I was uh, being compromised, that I was being exercised in my capacity to forgive on a daily basis. But praying with a friend, it seemed that the Lord was telling me that now is the time to stay put. And it was a, it was a, a real, what happened in the end was that this boss left and that opportunities opened up for me in that organization that I could never have expected. Sometimes it's the right thing for us to stay put. 
And for us, that verse from Philippians is uh, a mantra, if you like. I can do all things by him who gives me strength. I can do all things by him who gives me strength. But as we test the seasons, as we listen to God, there are other times when it's time to move on. It's time for a change. There are three occasions in my life when I've quit my job without very much to go to. I remember the first time I was a a new graduate. I've been working as an engineer for four years um, up in the northeast of England. And I decided, I've had enough of this. I'm going to go off and I'm going to study the Bible for a year. And I remember very distinctly my HR director taking me aside for a little pastoral chat. Will, do you reckon, do you, do you recognize that you are committing career suicide at the moment? Your whole life flies be, be before you. What an amazing career opportunity you're in. We have this greenfield site. You're at the cutting edge of technology. What are you do, doing giving it up with nothing else to go to? except to go off and study this Bible of yours. Well, thankfully, I stuck to my guns. And, <laughs> and uh, as it turned out, uh, we made silicon chips. And two years later, the chip price in Europe fell through the floor. And it was no longer viable to manufacture silicon chips in that part of England. And so the factory shut down. And I'd avoided, uh, I, I avoided the real possibility of redundancy. And that's not to say, well done, Will. You tested the seasons. I had absolutely no idea. I was just doing what I thought was the right thing to do, having prayed about it and seeking God. Sometimes it's the right time to quit and move on, and, and the Lord will show us when it's time to move on. The last time I quit, was, uh, well, I didn't really quit. I was asked, I was invited to leave, really, I suppose. Um, I had uh, been working in, rec- in a recruitment company for six years and, uh, and doing, doing very well there. Um, but I really felt that the Lord was telling me about creativity, that it was time for a bit of creativity in my life. And, uh, and so I asked them to go part-time. And... Uh, not just four days a week, I wanted to go three days a week so I could do two days a week of photography. And initially they were open to the idea, but then the managing director of the company said, there's absolutely no way I want to create this kind of precedent. And so they said, no, you can't do it, take it or leave it, you're staying on your current working arrangement. And so I did actually leave. Uh, And um, with nothing to go to, but then I, I did find another job. Uh, in a a competing recruitment company and that's where I met my beautiful wife. So praise the Lord that I quit that job. (laughs) Sometimes it's time to stay, sometimes it's time to go. We need to lead integrated lives, to seek God for our own fruitfulness in the workplace. Okay, what about the out? What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning. Some of us love our jobs, others hate them, some of us um, have good days, others have bad days, most of us have a mix. Didier Drogba, who plays for Chelsea, had a particularly good day yesterday. (laughs) 
scored the equaliser for Chelsea, and then the winning penalty. I wonder if any of you heard him being interviewed. This is what he said. I believe a lot in destiny. I pray a lot. It was written a long time ago. God is wonderful. Then he went on to say, this team is amazing. But, well, he couldn't get everything right, I suppose. (laughs) What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, I believe for the exiles, what uh, kept them going was hope. And Chris, again, referred to that amazing blessing about the God of hope from Romans. Who knows, said Mordecai, perhaps you've come to this position for such a time as this. In our morally compromised world, God is everywhere, working, and we retain our hope that the Lord can do amazing things. Do you remember the story of the centurion in Luke's gospel? He sent, sent his servant to Jesus to say, if you will it, you can heal my servant. There's no need to come to my house. I know that you can do it wherever you are. This was a member of the occupying force. That is a morally compromised position to be in. And yet Jesus held him up for having amazing faith. We find faith in the strangest places. We can have hope. We're also called to be generous. These words from Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, those who have been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. One of our main drivers to go to work is so that we might have something to share with those whom God is calling us to love, those that we live alongside. John the Baptist said to those coming to him to to repent and to be baptized, he said, those who have two coats should share with those who have none. And so another driver for work, another motivation is generosity. And finally, we, we all have the responsibility to act as servants in our workplace. The workplace, maybe more than any other, gives us the opportunity to serve. Servant leadership is the model that Jesus has given us. Here's what he said at the Last Supper to his disciples who were fighting over who was the most senior amongst them. He said, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules, like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Servant leadership is the model that we're invited to take up as Christians in work. So when we consider the outward direction 
our call is to pray for those that we work with, especially for those who work under us, that we might serve them, that we might be the answer to our own prayers, that they might flourish. But we pray also for those alongside us, those that we work under. We pray for our own opportunities to share, that the Lord will give us generous hearts, that we we pray that we will see God's kingdom coming, that the Lord will inspire within us his hope that we can be a light in a dark place.